1: Today's episode of Truth and Justice is sponsored by Sean T Fitness. Truth and Justice is the first to mention Sean T's new food system, PrepToods.com. That's PrepT as in T, foods.com. Sean T brings you all natural, delicious, and healthy meals prepped by culinary experts and delivered right to your home or office. That's right, PrepTfoods.com is here to help you make better choices for your nutrition and you don't have to stress at the grocery store or worry about preparing the meals. Prep Foods arrives to your house frozen with no preservatives. Order, heat, and eat to get easier results with Prep T Foods by Sean T. Go to com today. That's P-R-E-P-T Foods dot com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and I want to thank you all for joining me today. And today's show is all about you. There's a ton of prep work and investigation that's going into our next episode with Jim Clemente. And while a lot of my time is being dedicated to investigating the post offense behavior to prepare for that interview, I thought I would devote this episode completely to answering your listener emails. Now, obviously, I can't get to all of them as there's thousands of them, but I've got a great big stack of emails here and hopefully we'll clear things up for most of you that have questions. And regarding the Jim Clemente interview and analysis of the post-defense behaviors, there are a few reasons that we've had delays leading up to this interview. Number one is that Jim is extremely busy. Aside from Criminal Minds, last I spoke with Jim, he had 18 other projects that he was working on. But I did talk to Jim this weekend, and he is still very dedicated to working on this case and helping us find the answers. And the other reason for the delays is Jim's dedication. He let me know a couple of weeks ago, and he gave me permission this week to let all of you listeners know that Jim is not working this case alone. He has brought in forensic psychologist and profiler, Laura Richards, formerly of New York's Scotland Yard, to assist him in the analysis. So while I know you're all chomping at the bit to hear this analysis, and so am I, I know that it's going to be worth the wait to have two trained investigators of this caliber working and analyzing this case. And if all things go according to plan and we don't have any more hangups, you will be hearing that analysis in two weeks on December 6th. And just a heads up to all of you, there will be no Truth and Justice episode next week. I know we have listeners from all around the world but here in america next week is the thanksgiving holiday we have family coming into town and lots of people to see and lots of things to do and i'm just going to take next week to kind of unplug for a week so in two weeks we'll be back on december 6 and the plan is that you will hear both jim clemente and laura richards on that episode Very quickly, before we get into the listener email segment of the show today, I want to brush on Undisclosed last episode, Discoveries. If you haven't heard it, make sure you check it out. I'm sure most of you already have. But the Undisclosed team did an awesome job of going step-by-step through the process of the prosecution disclosing critical information to Adnan's defense. And the Reader's Digest version is this. They didn't. They fought every step of the way to conceal evidence from Adnan's defense team. They ignored deadlines, they left things out, they limited Gutierrez's opportunities to view photos of the burial site and the autopsy, and most importantly, they did not disclose any information that would lead Gutierrez to know what the prosecution's narrative would be. The only reason that Adnan knew that Jay Wilde was even involved in this was because the police told him during his interrogation. The prosecution took drastic measures to hide Jay Wilds. Their star witness in the case, their only real witness in this case, didn't even testify at the grand jury. And the end result of all of this was Gutierrez having to plan a defense around a mystery. She had no idea when they were claiming that Anon committed the murder, where it happened. She didn't know any of that because the prosecution intentionally withheld that information from her. And what does all of that mean? Well, to me, it's very telling. The prosecution's actions during this case make it abundantly clear that they knew they did not have a strong case against Anand Syed. If you have a strong case, and you have real proof, and you have actual evidence, there's no reason to play these games. They could easily disclose everything that they have to the defense, knowing that they could walk into trial and win because they had truth on their side. But in this case, the state knew. Truth was in the wind. Alright, and now it's time to get into your questions. I want to thank all of you listeners for being patient with me. As I've mentioned for the last couple of episodes, the premise of this program has always been that it is listener-driven, and that you email me your thoughts and theories and I read them on the air. Over the past several weeks, what I've been trying to do, and I know that some of these episodes may not have been the most exciting, but I'm trying to lay a foundation, trying to separate fact from fiction. We all know that this case was corrupt from the very beginning. And the problem that we've all been having is that we've been basing our current investigation off of that broken initial investigation. And so the purpose has been to clear up any inconsistencies, misinformation, and misconceptions so that we have a solid foundation of understanding of what the situation was really like back in January of 1999. Who all of the major players in this case really were. What were their personalities? What was happening during that time? What were their behaviors before, during, and after the crime? And I'm sure that some of you out there are worried that the investigation is fizzling out. And I want to assure you that that could not be further from the truth. There is intense investigative work being done behind the scenes right now and has been for the last couple of months. I'm crossing T's and dotting I's, bringing in experts, looking at things from every angle possible, and all of this has been leading up to springing forward with the new investigation. The first email that I have today is from Ashley Y. Ashley writes, I'm a big fan of what you're doing. I believe Adnan is innocent, but there are a few red flags with him. I know that Asia is a big witness for Adnan's case because she saw him in the library the day of Hayes' murder, but she's stating that she wouldn't remember if it hadn't been for the snow. It didn't snow on January 13th. It snowed on the 14th. Also, in Hayes' diary, she states that Adnan is possessive and got mad for her making plans with friends. I was wondering what you think of those things. Thanks, Ashley. Thank you for that email, Ashley, and those are good questions. Your first question about Asia has been brought up by several listeners. And the fact is that I don't exactly know how the weather plays into this alibi. Her original affidavit says that she remembers the day because she remembers her boyfriend being mad at her for talking to Adnan, and they were fighting, and she was upset because she got snowed into his house that night. And you're right, historical weather data shows that the ice storm did not move in until about 4.30 in the morning on the 14th. So what does that mean? I really don't know, but I'm sure that we'll hear and understand a lot better after Asia testifies at Adnan's post-conviction relief hearing. It could be that she was spending the night at her boyfriend's house and she wanted to leave in the morning and got stuck there. It could be that they were arguing all night until four in the morning and she got stuck there. I really don't know because the affidavit is very vague, and I don't think any of us will really know that whole story until Asia testifies at the hearing. And regarding your second question, you said that in Hayes' diary she states that Adnan is possessive. And this is the problem when a lot of people get their information by Googling the case, which leads them to Reddit threads. And people state things as facts that are not facts. Nowhere, not one single place in Hayes' diary, did she say that Adnan was possessive. Ever. Throughout all of the pages of Hayes' diary, she describes Adnan is kind and caring and loving, he's understanding, he's always doing sweet things for her. People have taken these things and presumed that to mean that Adnan was possessive and twisted that into Hay saying that he was possessive. There was one entry in the diary where Hay says that Adnan was mad at her for hanging out with her friends instead of him. She follows that up with how much she loves him and how sweet he is just like every other entry, but the Adnan is guilty crowd on Reddit has turned that into hey saying that Adnan is possessive. And it's simply not true. If you wipe your mind clear of all of the confirmation bias and all of the things people have said on the internet and consider that for a moment, think back to high school. Were any of you listening in a relationship in high school where either you or a boyfriend or girlfriend got upset because you were spending time with your friends instead of with them. Without seeing the show of hands, I bet I can almost guarantee that 100% of you have experienced this, or very close friends to you have experienced this. This is not a controlling, possessive murderer. This is a high school relationship. Nothing more than that. And Haman Lee never once, not one time, described Anon as possessive nor did she ever describe him as anything other than kind, sweet, caring, and loving. I hope that answers your questions, Ashley, and thank you so much for sending in the email, and keep them coming. My next email is from Olivia. Olivia writes, If Don got off work at 6 p.m., got home by 7 p.m., and called LensCrafters to hear that Hay is missing, why would he wait until 1 a.m. to call the detective back? Something is fishy. Also, has anyone looked into Don's parents' residences? Maybe one of them has a garage where Hay's car could have been kept. Maybe one is close to Woodlawn. And is it true that Hay's car was found near Don's neighborhood slash his high school? Okay, so we have three questions there from Olivia. The first one is, if Don knew that Hay was missing by 7 p.m. and that the police were looking for him, why did he wait to 1 a.m. to call them back? And that's a question I would love to know the answer to. I've made several attempts to get a statement from Don, from his family, from anyone that can explain this to me, and nobody's talking. So all I can tell you right now are the facts, which are exactly as you laid them out. Other than the fact that we don't know that Don called the detective back at 1 a.m. As a matter of fact, it wasn't 1 a.m., it was 1.30 a.m. All that's said in the police notes is that it should be noted that he made contact with Don at 1.30 a.m. So we don't know if he called Don back. If Don called him back, we really have no idea because all we have to go on is that vague police note. Regarding Don's parents' residences and a garage, I don't know the answer to that for sure. I believe that Don's father's house did have a garage, but I don't know that that really tells us anything. And Your last question is, is it true that Hayes' car was found near Don's neighborhood slash his high school? And again, I know this seems to be a theme, but I don't know the answer to that. We do know that the Baltimore County Police ordered the area around Don's house to be searched for Hay and Hay's car on the night that she went missing, and they didn't find anything. But we do have those NCIC hits on Hay's license plates later in February in the county where Don resided. Unfortunately, we don't know why exactly the plates were run. It's possible that a couple of officers ran across Hay's car and ran the plate, and it's also possible that The searches were a result of an APB or a BOL being put out for Hayes' car, and an officer may have punched those into their MDT, or their mobile data terminal, which is the laptops in their vehicles, to gather more information on the APB. This was the MPIA request that Susan Simpson was talking about a few weeks back. She filed a request for the details in the supporting documents for those searches, and once again, the request was ignored and the information wasn't given. Thank you for the email, Olivia. I look forward to hearing from you again.
0: A woohooer, a hand clap, or a high-fiver. I kind of like the high-five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void. Were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: My next email is from Mark Kelly. Mark asks, can you clarify something? He writes, Hi, Bob. Amazed with the amount of work, time, and detail you've put into this podcast. I listen to serial Undisclosed and Truth and Justice and find Truth and Justice the most complete in scope. Well, thank you for that, Mark. Personally, I find Undisclosed the most complete in scope. I have a question that takes us way back. In the J and State narrative of the crime, how were the two cars handled in the immediate aftermath of the crime? Who was driving which car, where, when? Which car was the body in when... Who dumped Hay's car? When? I may be wrong, but in all the detail we have, of all the various parts of the theories of the crime, it seems the cars are hardly mentioned at all. Can you do a quick summation, maybe? Thanks, Mark, listening from Ireland. Thank you, Mark. Good to hear from you. The issue with the cars is that who the hell knows? The best suggestion I can give you is to look up the transcripts of Jay's interviews, and you'll see why the cars aren't mentioned very often. And the reason is because Jay is all over the place. He changes his story about where the cars are, when they're going to certain places, where the trunk pop happens, when they get to Leakin Park, how they park the cars, where they park the cars. In his first interview, he describes in detail a non vomiting three times while they're burying the body. But in his second interview, he says that he only vomited one time. His confusion when he's trying to explain pulling up to the burial site is so nonsensical that I can't even make sense of what his final version of the story is. In his second interview when he's telling the story, he talks about Anon telling Jay to go ahead and then Anon carrying Hay back to the burial site. Uh, In one version he walks back out and Jay sits on a log and watches Anon bury the body. In another version Jay's helping bury the body. And then he gets really confused later when he's talking about dumping the car. Now, Jay's consistent in saying that he never drove Hay's car, that Adnan was the only one ever in Hay's car. But when he's trying to tell the story about when they were picking out the spot to dispose of Hay's car, he talks about conversations they were having while driving down the road, yet they're supposedly in two separate cars. And we know that if his story were true, they had to have two separate cars, yet somehow they're having a conversation as though they're sitting right next to each other. He talks about leaving Hay's car at a park-and-ride while they go look for weed, and Anon goes back to track practice. It's just a mess, and I would give you a clear timeline of the events and the locations of the cars if I had one. But you have to pick out which version of Jay's stories you want to believe, and then even when you do that, it's hard to make sense of them, because mid-sentence he'll change his story multiple times throughout the interviews. So that's the best I can do for you. I know it's not a lot of help, Mark, but get online and look up those transcripts, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. My next email is from Alan. Alan writes, Hi, Bob. I only discovered your website last week, so I've listened to a few episodes. But thanks, they're great. Anyway, I don't know the case super well. I have only listened to all the episodes of Serial and Undisclosed one time. One thing that I keep going back to is, in one of the episodes, I don't know which program it was, a female witness expressed the knowledge of how Hayman Lee died, possibly before Hay was found, or immediately upon being told of her death. She said she knew that she was strangled. I don't know if it was Jen or someone else, but I believe that when she was told of her death, or possibly even before Hay was found, she said or predicted that it would turn out that Hay had been strangled. If I am remembering this correctly, it seems critical because it seems to indicate genuine knowledge of the crime, i.e., before anyone else knew this fact. Do you recall the witness and statement I'm referring to? Could you please fill me in as to the correctness of my memory, or if this might be as significant as I think it might be, to tie someone at least indirectly to the crime? Thanks so much, Alan. Thank you, Alan, for writing in. And the witness you're referring to is, in fact, Jen. And the statement she made about Hay being strangled was during her interview with the police. She said that Hay had been strangled, and that she knew this because she believes her friend Nicole had told her so. She said that her friend's mother is the one that found the body at Leakin Park because she works there. Well, if you go back several episodes, I covered this, and there was another body found near the gate, but that body had been burned. Now, it's possible that it could have been determined later that that victim was indeed strangled, and maybe Jen was confusing that. But it does seem that Jen actually did know that Hay had been strangled before that information had been officially released. And I believe I've mentioned it a few times on the podcast before, The Jen has always confused me. I've never understood Jen's involvement. Even if you believe Jay's story, Jen's story still doesn't make sense. She appears to have some knowledge of the crime, but when you really listen, her stories don't match up with Jay's story. None of it really makes sense. And the best way that I could answer you is to give you a theory of mine. And I want to make clear that this is just a theory that I've been toying around with. If the police did use non cell phone records to help narrow him down as the prime suspect, the first person that would have been a red flag from those records would have been Jen. There were several calls to Jen during the afternoon that Hay went missing, and I wonder if the explanation for Jen's involvement could be that she was the one that was originally harassed and or coerced by the police. According to the official record, they went to Jen first, and Jen led them to Jay. But what if it was Jen they were leaning on, and Jen was the one who was scared? There are clear indications throughout the records of this case that Jay had been talking to the police long before they ever officially documented that they were speaking to him. In one of those notes, E says that he saw Jay in the back of a police car near Jen's house or outside of Jen's house. And this was weeks before Jay was actually brought in for questioning. What if we have this all wrong? A lot of us have been assuming that if Jay had no involvement in this and his testimony was coerced, that Jen's involvement was simply to help protect her friend, to help corroborate his story. But what if it was the other way around and they were pushing Jen into doing this? And Jay was the one that stepped up to protect his friend, Jen. There was a statement that Jen made that always struck me as odd, where she says that when she told Jay that the police were questioning her, that he told her to send them to me. It always seemed a little odd to me, and it certainly could just mean that he didn't want her getting caught up in his problems. But what if it was Jay being chivalrous? He says that he's had many run-ins with the police before. He's been beat up and knocked down. He said he had his ass kicked in his front yard by police. In his mind, he can handle their abuse. He's done it before. So what if that was Jen's involvement? That she was the original person being bullied by the cops. And Jay stepped up and took the fall for her. Like I said, that's nothing more than a theory, it's speculation, so don't take it as anything other than that. But really to me, it's almost the only thing that makes sense. If Jay's telling the truth and all this really happened, then Jen doesn't make sense because her story is different than Jay's. The idea of Jen involving herself in this, just to help corroborate Jay's story if he wasn't involved, doesn't make a whole lot of sense either. But Jay stepping up to protect Jen, that makes a little bit more sense to me. So just something to think about. Thank you, Alan, for that email. My next email comes from Carly. Carly writes, Hi, Bob. Great podcast. Love your passion and dedication. It's much appreciated by us listeners. I haven't been able to listen to all of the episodes yet. I was late to the party, thus having to backlog. So this may have been covered. But we know that the detectives were strangely interested in whether Hayden and Don ever hooked up at a hotel when interviewing Debbie. And that Don strangely made specific mention to the cops that if she went to California to be with her dad, that she would park her car near the airport and fly out there. A very oddly specific detail. We also know that Baltimore cops twice ran Hay's plate through their database before the car was officially revealed to the city cops by Jay. She has revealed in quotes. I make the assumption that the car was found at or near a hotel. Otherwise, why would they labor the point? Is there any way to tell if those county plate checks happened at a hotel? If so, is that hotel near the airport? Is it possible Don was trying to establish a plausible line of thought for police if Hayes' car was found there, but her body was never discovered? Thank you, Carly, for that email. There's a lot of mystery around this hotel thing. I still, like you, find it extremely odd that towards the end of March, nearly a month after Adnan had been arrested, and weeks after Jay's second interview, that Ritz and McGillivray repeatedly come back to asking Debbie if Adnan and Hay ever hooked up in a hotel. Now, there's been some speculation that maybe it has something to do with Bilal, as Bilal was one of his alibi witnesses that testified at the grand jury, and they were questioning him about his activities at a hotel. And that very well may be the case. However, I doubt that the prosecution... A, knew that Bilal was someone who was going to testify for Adnan at the grand jury, and B, by that point, would have had enough time to do research into Bilal to know about any connections he may have had to a hotel. And C, the information that they had about Bilal regarding the hotel, I assume had to do with his later charges involving the 14-year-old boy. And if that was the case, I don't see how that would have anything to do with Hay and Adnan hooking up in a hotel. I also don't see why it would matter. They already had their narrative. They already had their statements from Jay. Jay never mentioned a hotel. Jen never mentioned a hotel. They had no reason to be asking Debbie about a hotel where Adnan and Hay had hooked up. Unfortunately, we don't know the answers, but I'll tell you my theory. My theory is that later in the investigation, after Adnan was arrested, after Jay had given both of his statements and they had set their narrative, They got a tip of some sort about Hay being at a hotel. It could be anything. It could be a hotel clerk seeing Hay on the news and saying, Hey, I saw her at the hotel that day. Maybe someone said I saw that car at a hotel that day. It could have been anything. But the way I read that, and I certainly could be wrong, but the way I read their insistence of coming back to that hotel question with Debbie, not just once, but two or three or four times they come back to it is that they have information that Hay may have been at a hotel that day, and they're trying to see if there's any way that they can tie Adnan to that hotel. And once Debbie multiple times explicitly says no, that as far as she knows, Hay and Adnan never hooked up at a hotel, the hotel completely drops away from the case. There's never anything in the narrative at trial about a hotel. We never hear about it again. And like I said, I could be completely wrong about that, But these are the times that I really wish that we were dealing with good, honest cops that were seeking the truth, even if it means they were wrong 16 years ago, because it would be really nice to know why they were asking about that hotel. And I do have a theory about this. I think it is completely plausible that Hay was murdered in a hotel, and that's where she was left for 6 to 12 hours while Lividity set in, before she was moved to Leakin Park for burial. And I also think it's very plausible that late in the investigation, the cops got a tip that indicated that, but when they couldn't tie it to Adnan, they let it go. My next email is from Jan Whitaker from Melbourne, Australia. Jan sent a very long email, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, but she brought something to my attention that I had never noticed before. This could be nothing, or it could be something and I'm really interested to hear the input from you listeners. Jan was writing about the I'm going to kill note, and it has been repeatedly stated that that note was written on the back of the breakup letter that Hay wrote to Adnan. I've always just taken for granted that that's true, but Jan caught something that I've never caught before. If you go online and you Google the letter and you find some of the images of it, what you'll see is that on the breakup letter, there are perforations on the left side of the page meaning that it came from a notebook and it has all the little holes on the left side of the page, which is the way you would typically write. But the note that Anon was passing back and forth with Aisha, that was supposedly written on the back of the breakup note, also have the perforations on the left side of the page. So imagine you're looking at a spiral-bound notebook, and you open it up in front of you to write. So you have the back of pages that are already written on, on the left-hand side, And on the right-hand side, you have the new page that you're currently writing on. The perforations on that page would be on the left edge. So if Hayes' breakup note was on that page, and then you flipped it over to write on the back of it, the back of that page would have the perforations on the right side. But that's not the case here. The perforations are actually on the left, just like the front of the letter. Now this could mean one of two things. Either the note being passed back and forth with Aisha that says I'm going to kill on it, came from a completely separate page and was not written on the back of the breakup note. Or the other option is that it was written on the back of it, but they had the page flipped upside down. Now, either of these are equally as plausible. However, when I thought about it more, I tend to believe that it probably was written upside down on the page. And the reason for that is that we're looking at PDF scans. And it is clear that the perforations are on the left side of both pages. However, it most likely would not have been a PDF scan at trial. That note would have been bagged as evidence, and the original note would have been brought into trial. So if the detectives were trying to play some sort of game, and take a different page and claim that it was written on the back of the note, it would have been easily detected at trial, because the original should have been in evidence and should have been what was presented at trial. So, Jan, it's a really intriguing question, and it was a great catch. And you may be right, but I have to say that my hunch is that it probably was written upside down because of the fact that it would have been the original document presented at trial. But I want to thank you, Jan, for digging deep and looking at every detail of the case. It's attention to detail like this that are going to catch the things that we've missed in the past. Thank you, Jan, from Melbourne, Australia. Before we move on to our next batch of emails, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor.
0: Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW group Void We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18
1: Alright, my next email comes from Rusty. Rusty writes, It has recently come to my attention, maybe because I don't pay close enough attention, that the autopsy revealed a contusion on the right side of Hay's skull. Are any of our prime suspects left-handed? If in a sudden rage, a blow from a left-handed person could easily land on the left side of a skull. Nothing earth-shattering, but if any of them are, it could be one piece of circumstantial evidence. Thanks, Rusty. Thanks, Rusty, and it's great to hear from you. And I don't know if any of the suspects are left-handed. But the problem is that even if we did have one suspect that was left-handed, it's still not really a smoking gun of any kind. Because what we don't know is if hay was struck from the front or from the rear. If someone was standing face-to-face with her, yes, you're right, they would be left-handed if they punched her in the head. However, if someone would hit her from behind, they would be right-handed. And there were actually two contusions on the right side of her skull. One was on the temporal area of her skull, so the side of her head, and the other was in the right occipital region, which means near the back. So again, you can come up with a couple of different scenarios. It could be a left-handed person from the front where the first blow caused her to turn her head and the second blow hit her towards the back. But at the same time, it could be a right-handed person from behind her where the first blow hit her near the back of her head and the second blow hit her in the temple. And aside from that, we also can't rule out the fact that her head may have hit some other object. It could have hit a wall or a door or a bedpost, or a B post in a car. It really could have been anything, and unfortunately, in the autopsy, they weren't able to conclude what the object was that hit her. It was just that there was some blunt force trauma. So that could be a fist, that could be a baseball bat, that could be a wall, that could be anything. So again, just like Jan's email, this was a great catch, great attention to detail. Unfortunately, it doesn't really give us any answers. My next email comes from Alicia W. She says, just wanted to pass along my thoughts on some of the points you made in the episode. Number one, the discrepancy between Hay and Don's statement on when they started dating. I actually did not find this discrepancy strange at all. Hay mentioned that their first date was January 1st, but Don's statement seemed to reflect dating earlier. Since they're in high school, well, Hay is, I can see how that could be interpreted differently. I'm sure there are many high schoolers who are, quote, dating people, but in actual fact are just hanging out with them at school, lunch, work, or regular scheduled phone calls. So before I move on to the second point, I'll respond to that one. First of all, thank you, Alicia, for emailing in. Personally, I do find the discrepancy significant. Not that it's a smoking gun or anything of that sort, but it has to tell us something. Don is not a high school student. Don is a 20-year-old man, and he believed that he and Hay were dating before Christmas. And so maybe you're right. Maybe they hadn't gone on any actual dates, but they were talking on the phone, they were hanging out, they were doing whatever it was that they were doing. He described the relationship in Serial as him being her boyfriend when that event occurred in December. He said it was a typical meeting of a new boyfriend and an old boyfriend. So you could be right. It could just be that Don's perception of their relationship was different than Hay's perception. Although in a normal circumstance, I would expect that to be the other way around. I would expect the high school girl to be the one to take the leap to say that they were dating, and the 20-year-old man to be the one that wouldn't consider dating until they'd actually gone on a date. But anyway, that doesn't seem to be the case here. One possibility is the fact that Hay censored her diary. We know that there have been instances where her brother had read her diary, and that she had a computer diary also. So she may have purposely been making things look differently in her handwritten diary and putting the real details in her computer diary. Unfortunately, that's another piece of evidence that just seems to be lost. But more importantly, what we do know is that Don considered them to be in a relationship before Christmas. He considered himself her boyfriend and that they were dating. And what that does tell us is that our perception of the relationship between Hay and Don that we learned from Serial was wrong. Many people have said Don and Hay were only dating for 12 days, and they'd only went on two dates. What motivation could he possibly have? And I'm not saying that Don was the killer because of this, but it's at least worth pointing out that after Don believed that Hay was his girlfriend, Hay exchanged Christmas gifts with Adnan, she still talked with Adnan, Adnan gave her a ride home after that incident... She gave Adnan a ride to pick up his car at Sears the day before they went on what she considered to be their first date. So if we're going to take the leap to say that Adnan had a motive to kill Hay because she broke up with him, then it's only fair to consider that Don had a motive because he was in a relationship with her, at least he was in his mind, and she was still spending a lot of time with her ex-boyfriend, even giving rides and exchanging Christmas gifts. Alicia's second point is this. She says Don at Adnan's meeting. In some ways, this meeting could work to assist us better in understanding Adnan. I assume that Hay would have confided in Don, and if she had at all expressed discomfort with Adnan, A, she probably wouldn't have gotten into his car to go home with him, and B, it's unlikely Don would have been comfortable with her going with Adnan if she had expressed a concern. The fact that Don has never really said anything against Adnan helps to solidify this. I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean Adnan is innocent, but I've not heard of any evidence that really clearly states there was any known threat. Thanks for continuing with these episodes, Alicia. And Alicia, you bring up a really good point, and unfortunately, like many things in this case, we kind of have to make some assumptions here, so you can kind of decide for yourself, but I think it is kind of telling. If Hay was truly concerned about Adnan, if Adnan truly was this possessive, controlling person, she probably would have said so to her new boyfriend. And when her car broke down, it would seem a lot more likely that she would get into Don's car for a ride home than in Non's. and if there was this concern, you wouldn't think that Don would be so open to Non giving her the ride home. Thanks for that email, Alicia. Keep in touch. My next two emails both come from the same listener, Tiffany. Tiffany writes, Bob, if you look at Don's time for the 13th, it's calculated as 8.4 hours. In fact, it should have been 8.6 hours, as it is calculated the nearest tenth of an hour on all other time cards from lens crafters. However, it looks like when it was falsified, the culprit had 8 hours 40 minutes in their mind and entered the decimal as such, 8.4 hours. This to me is undeniable proof as the computer would not have improperly calculated this. Has anyone brought this up before? I'd love to hear back from you as to whether this has been noticed and or discussed previously anywhere. Love your show. You're doing great work. Thanks, Tiffany. And Tiffany, the different methods of calculating the hours on that timesheet has been brought up in the past, but you're the first one, at least to me, to point out that it very well could have been that mistake that you mentioned, that it was 8 hours and 40 minutes, and since the person was manually entering the time rather than the computer calculating the time when someone punches in, they thought 8 hours and 40 minutes and punched in 8.4 hours. If the person had actually punched in and out, the computer would have automatically generated that time and it would have said 8.6 hours. Now, I don't know that I can agree that this is undeniable proof that it was falsified, but certainly when you add this to all of the other evidence that proves that the timesheet was falsified, it just makes that case even that much stronger. Tiffany's second email says, On February 1st, O'Shea interviewed the Owings Mills manager, Don's stepmother. Perhaps Don was the source of the anonymous tip on February 1st, as he realized the police were checking into his alibi, Although I love the theory that it was Jay for the Crime Stoppers money and all that entails, it's possible Don did it to throw them off his track. Are there records as to what time the call to LensCrafters was made and what time the tip was received? Well, Tiffany, this is another example where Adnan's defense team has filed an MPIA request to receive the information on the Crime Stoppers tip and they haven't gotten an answer yet. And I, like you, find it highly suspicious that the day that O'Shea called the manager to check Don's alibi also happens to be the same day that the Crime Stoppers tip was called in. And when you couple that with the fact that the state has purposely hid who made that tip, it does seem extremely suspicious. They are required under violation of Brady to disclose who that tipster was to Adnan if that tipster testified at trial. Now, given the time when the payment was made, I do believe that Jay most likely was the person who received the payment. However, I've been asking a lot of detectives about this, and my question has been, is it possible for a detective to manipulate the Crime stopper system and allow someone else to get paid other than the person who actually made the tip? And the answer to that question is yes. Now fortunately, all of the police officers that I know are great cops and they're honest people, so their first thought was, well, who the hell would do something like that? But as they thought it through, everyone that I talked to said that yes, if you really wanted to do that, you could give the code number to someone else and have them go get paid. And that's because Crime Stoppers never ask the names of the tipsters. That information is obtained by the detectives. Like I said, to me it seems more than likely that Jay was the one who received the reward money. But it has never made sense to me that Jay would be the one to call on this anonymous tip. It just doesn't seem to fit with Jay's character. Now, I know we can say that Jay lies, and Jay's allowed an innocent man to sit in prison, and all of that's true, but I don't see Jay as being a snitch, and I don't see Jay as being a person who would sell someone out for $3,000, especially if he had no real knowledge of what actually happened. My thought is, I wonder if someone else called the tip in. Now, you're right, it could have been Don calling in the tip to try to throw them off the case. And in fact, that scenario certainly would make a lot of sense. That was the day when he got the most pressure by the police as they were actually calling to check up on his alibi. But we don't know what time that tip was called in. It could have also went the other way around. That anonymous tip could have been someone calling in saying, you need to look at the boyfriend, check into the boyfriend. And when they checked into Don, and it seemed as though his alibi checked out, they then diverted their attention to Adnan. I think either of those two scenarios are plausible. If that tip was indeed someone calling in saying to look at the boyfriend, that would explain why on that date, on February 1st, they decided all of a sudden to verify Don's alibi. Hopefully sometime in the near future, the state is persuaded to actually fulfill their legal obligation to answer Don's request. Alright, now the last email I want to read is from Dean. Dean writes, Hey Bob, great podcast. I'm super impressed with your passion and dedication to this project. I agree with all of your analysis on nearly all of the topics. I definitely agree that Adnan was wrongfully convicted and is wrongfully imprisoned. And personally, I'm fairly certain of his innocence. From the beginning, even before Undisclosed came out, I was unconvinced of Adnan's conviction and Jay's role in the entire thing. I've always had a strange feeling that there was so little information about Don. I'm in no way as familiar with all the facts and details of the case as you and the Undisclosed team are. But one thing has been bugging me from the very beginning of this entire podcast phenomenon, in an effort to not waste your time, I've gone back and listened to the entire serial podcast and the specific episodes relating to the autopsy. What's bothering me is why and how are we convinced that Hayley was actually killed on January 13th. From episode 5 of Undisclosed, Colin Miller says something like, From the autopsy report, it says Lee had generalized skin slippage. Then Dr. Levati responds, I think the amount of distribution of skin slippage on the body is exactly what you'd expect for a body that was buried in a shallow grave for about three to four weeks and then disinterred and examined. My problem is the, quote, about three to four weeks. This doesn't convince me that Heyman Lee was actually killed on January 13th. I didn't concern myself with all of the discussions about rigor mortis, liver mortis, and fixed frontal lividity because those facts only pertain to the first 24 to 48 hours after death. But the body wasn't found for a few weeks later. So, lividity and rigor mortis do not factor into my question. I'm not a medical examiner, but what seems to me would matter is the rate of decay of the body in the winter months in Baltimore. Was the rate of decay of Hay's body consistent with the time of death on January 13th, or is it a range like Dr. Levati mentioned? So, my question. The date and time of death needs to be ascertained first before we can determine who the suspects can be, right? Why aren't the investigators, detectives, lawyers looking at Don's, Jay's, and Adnan's actions whereabouts on January 13th and several days afterward? I mean, it's possible that Adnan could have killed Hay on the 14th, 15th, 16th, etc. Same rationale could apply to Jay and Don as well. So I guess my main question is, why are we so convinced that the death murder happened on January 13th and not on another day? I'll understand if you don't have time to answer this question, but if you do, it would be great to hear your reply and answer Thanks much, appreciatively, Dean. Well, thank you, Dean, for sending that email in, and that's a question that's been asked by several people. How do we know that Hay died on January 13th? Well, the truth is that we don't know for absolute certain that that's the day that she died, but all evidence seems to indicate that that's when it happened. I think it's safe to assume that Hay was intercepted before 315 when she was supposed to pick up her cousin. No one seems to think that that's a responsibility that she would shrug off. Now, with all the physical evidence on the scene, skin slippage, decay of the brain, things like that, you're right, we have a range of time as to when death could have occurred. And also weather and temperature factors play into that as well. But the other piece of evidence that you're missing from your email is the fact that, one, Hay was still wearing the same clothes she was when she left school, and two, her body showed no sign of restraint. Meaning if someone had kidnapped her and kept her alive for a number of days, we would see some evidence of that. We would see defensive wounds. We would see ligature marks on her wrist or her ankles where she was restrained. So the only possible scenario to me where Hay could have been murdered on another day at another time would have been if she willingly went with someone, didn't pack any extra clothes, stayed in the same clothes for multiple days, and did so willingly, and had no need of being restrained, and wasn't fighting whoever it was that was holding her captive. In fact, she wouldn't have been being held captive. She would have just been hanging out with someone. So when we factor all these things in together, when we see two wounds to her head that likely could have rendered her unconscious, we know that she was manually strangled, and she didn't fight back. She has no scratch marks on her own throat, anything that you would expect from a conscious person who's being strangled she's still wearing the same clothes, she didn't show up to pick up her cousin at 3.15, and her body shows no sign of being restrained, and we apply that to the range of time given by the medical examiners, I believe the most probable, likely scenario is that she was indeed murdered on January 13th, somewhere between 2.30 and 3.15 p.m. Thank you, Dean, for sending that in, and I hope that answers your question, along with all of you other listeners who have had the same question. Now, the last thing that I want to discuss before I sign off for today is Jay's knowledge of the location of Hayes' car. Probably the biggest hang up that anyone has about this case is the fact that Jay supposedly knew where Hayes' car was. According to the police, Jay led them right to it. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about the fact that Hayes' car looked very clean. There was green grass in the wheel wells. It looked like it had recently been moved. There's some question about Jay's testimony, whether he said he actually took the police somewhere else before actually taking them to the car. But when I was listening to Undisclosed this week, they played some news footage from right after Adnan was arrested. And I don't know if I was the only one that caught this, but it snapped right to my attention and caused me to rewind it and listen to it several times. I'm going to play it for you right now. This is a clip from Undisclosed episode Discoveries and see if you're hearing the same thing that I'm hearing. Police now reveal that 18-year-old Hymen Lee died of strangulation and that they discovered her 1998 Nissan Sentra, a short distance from where her killer attempted to bury her body in a shallow grave in Lincoln Park. Key details they had withheld as they sought out a suspect. Did you hear what he just said? Let me play it again. Old Hymen Lee died of strangulation. And that they discovered her 1998 Nissan Sentra, a short distance from where her killer attempted to bury her body in a shallow grave in Lincoln Park. Key details they had withheld as they sought out a suspect. And that they discovered her 1998 Nissan Sentra, key details they had withheld as they sought out a suspect. Key details that they had withheld while they sought out a suspect. For those of you that are unfamiliar how these news reports work, law enforcement or fire agencies like myself, when we have an incident, we write press releases to all the news organizations. That's where they get their information from. That, along with interviews conducted by high-ranking officials at the police department. For example, at my fire department, even if I'm not the one who was commanding a fire scene, if one of my captains or lieutenants are the ones that were in charge of the scene, The newspapers will call me, the chief, to get a statement. And if they don't do that, they work directly off of these press releases. To me, that sounded an awful lot like Baltimore PD's first statement to the press after arresting Adnan was that Hay had been strangled and her car was found near the place where her body was dumped and that this was information that they withheld until they found a suspect. Thank you to Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music for creating all the music for the show. Thank you to Tate Krupa for creating our logo. A big thank you to Sean T. at Sean T. Fitness for sponsoring today's episode. And thank all of you listeners for all of your participation. And thank you so much for your patience and waiting for me to get to an episode where I can actually address your emails with your thoughts, theories, and ideas. So keep those coming in to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Check us out on Facebook. I'm listed under Truth and Justice with Bob Ruff. Follow the show on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And again, if you've got thoughts, theories, ideas that you want to get off your chest, email them in to me at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Don't forget that next week during the Thanksgiving holiday will be a week off. Our next episode will be on December 6, and fingers crossed we should have Jim Clemente and Laura Richards on the show on that day. For now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.